so we we try to make sure that we're highlighting the the need to treat everything mm-hmm. in real time. Uh, I think one of the best examples is when we go over how to do a, a litter carry. <clears throat> I'll watch a lot of students drop their packs with the thought that, well, we're only a hundred feet from the classroom. I'll leave my pack here, do the litter carry, and come back and get it. Um, yeah. And it's always funny to point out to them, like you <clears throat> you planning on leaving the pack at the top of the mountain so that you can go back up and get it afterwards? Because that's that's what you're doing right now. <laughs> and you, you just see those wheels turn a little bit. Oh, you want us to wear these? Like, well, I'm not carrying seven of them. So, yes. That's awesome. Um, and it is funny when we do a carry out and then afterwards like, man, that was that was a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah, there's... It's literally the opposite of everything you could possibly want to do all at once. Yeah. Like, right. There's never a time when I've wanted to lift something only with one hand. <laughs> there's never a time that I've wanted to go downhill with more weight. <laughs> and there's never a time that I thought, you know, what would make hiking better is to do it with 30 people <laughs> that I don't know all at once. And one person that's particularly miserable. <laughs> it's literally, it's the best way to make all of those things less ideal and then we're just going to do it for a really long drawn out period of time that's so funny (laughs) oh man gotta love it broadcasting from the woodpeckers studio in the great state of new hampshire welcome to the sounds like a search and rescue podcast where we discuss all things related to hiking and search and rescue in the white mountains of new hampshire here are your hosts, Mike and Stump. Stump, I thought it was impressive that your neighbors were so receptive to you telling them to turn the lights and the internet off in their house so you could get the podcast going. <laughs> I'll do it with my, uh, my hedge clear. <laughs> I don't care that it's Jeopardy night. I've got plans. All right. Yeah. Exactly. Everybody get off the internet. So, okay. So we are recording here. And um, so, Stomp, what are you up to with this um, best driver, best state annoying driver thing that you're up to? What's what's happening? Well, well, there's some backstory to this because my my folks have... We've had technical difficulties, so now I'm looking at my uh, my Wi-Fi icon with sweat in here. But uh, yeah, my folks have a Honda Pilot, and they just got this vanity plate that says hiking on it. So we're cruising down 40. They have New Hampshire plates? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, they're they've moved up. They're they're with us temporarily, and they're looking for a house and stuff yeah. like that. But they get their hiking plate and their hiking sticker and all this and that. And. Uh, we were going to make sure they blend in. Yeah, exactly. So we're coming back from Plymouth, and we're going down 49, and somebody cuts in front of me to get between myself and the, and the rear and their car in the front, and it's a Vermont plate, and it's just literally inches, centimeters on their, their bumper. And I just started thinking about it like, oh, my God. It wasn't exactly related to hiking, but I thought that would be a funny question to ask the uh, listeners, like, what state ranks the worst in terms of you know driving as you're heading to the trailhead? Uh, is there a pattern? Is there a trend? And uh, the options were New York, 
um, Mass, Vermont, Maine, Connecticut, Rhode Island. And uh, do you guys have an inkling as to what came up top? <laughs> um, I think, I mean, for me, I have my own personal opinion, and I don't think it'll get voted as the top, but uh, my guess would be New York would get the one that would get the, the most votes to say, like, they're the most annoying drivers. Well, that's the one that came in. I mean, it was it was a slim... Uh, slim sample size let me say uh but yeah new york came in the top and coming from mass i mean i was surprised mass didn't even rank in the top five i'm like what are you kidding me yeah yeah. well i i think you know so i come i mean i've been coming up to Maine in new hampshire for 25 years and so for me like uh, the roads at least on the like coming up route 16 in north conway and into freiburg like that whole area there i'm essentially like driving like a local but i think as I started doing the 52 with a view over the last couple of years, like I spent a lot more time on 93 and I, I definitely could get the senses like a lot of local New Hampshire people, even if I'm going like 80 miles an hour on the, on the right hand lane, I'll have people driving on my bumper. And I, I know now to get out of the way, but, um, mm-hmm. I'm definitely pro. I definitely annoyed some people, I think around twin mountain Lincoln and, and, and into Gorham with not really knowing where to go. Mm-hmm. See, I think there's, there's a few factors that, that occurred to me. One is when you, when you watch people driving through New Hampshire, through rural New Hampshire, they drive like they've never seen a tree. Like every tree is the statue of Liberty in value of view. And so all I can think is the more urban setting you come from, all of a sudden it's like they just wandered into Jurassic park Mm -hmm. and are waiting for the, the show. The other thing that cracks me up is when you, like, if you've ever driven on the Merritt Parkway, Connecticut drivers don't strike me as being that bad, but they're in, they're insane. Like mm-hmm. they're the, they're like the hidden weapon of the Northeast where you could be, you can already be doing 85 on the Merritt with a 55 limit and Connecticut drivers are going to pass you wondering why you're going so slow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the thing about the Merritt Parkway is like if you it's nice to be in the right-hand lane, but it's stressful because you you know, you you're moving along quickly, but like sometimes you'll get somebody on your you know, on your ass and then if you get in the right-hand lane in the Merritt, like sometimes like it, it could be like miles before you can even have an opportunity to get over the left-hand lane again. So <laughs> it's so stressful, but for me personally, like I route 16 is a one lane road in a lot of places. And for me, the, what really always gets me is the Rhode Island drivers going like 45, 50 miles an hour in the single lane route 16 going North and basically backing up traffic for miles. So for me, I have a bias against Rhode Island drivers. So I, I don't know if it's true or not, but for me in my head, I always feel like Rhode Island drivers are the worst, but, but Chris, you're right. Like I was just up at Dixville notch and I've never really been up in that area there. And I was like rubbernecking every little section and I was just cause I've never <laughs> been there. So I get it. Um, but I think we can all agree New York drivers are probably the worst. Hey, it's funny to talk about bias because my <laughs> bias is, um, when I'm driving North from t- exit 2893 to 32, I'm getting literally all the hikers flying by me doing 90 going to their hike for the day and um i take note of the plates and that's i i i see mostly mass plates i hate to say it i mean it's a couple vermonts i don't know how they they get into the equation but uh it's definitely a heavy heavy uh percentage of mass 
on on the 93 side. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, we're not going to, this is a bad audience. Like me and you are Massachusetts, you know, you're not local anymore, but I'm a Massachusetts resident, so I'm not going to really admit that mass drivers are horrible, even though, you know, there's probably something to that. All right. So um, before we get into the the show opening, Stomp, do you want to run through sponsors? And then we have some people to to thank for for donors that they've given us money. Is that that what I'm hearing? Uh, They've given you money, yeah. So you can pay the bills. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so yeah, we have um, our donation platform here, which is Buy Me a Coffee. We have several people that donated to the fund to keep us afloat here for the um, distribution platform and whatnot. And they are Sarah, who bought us three coffees. This is a lot of coffee, okay? Uh, Brent Teal, who bought five coffees. Mary B, she bought five. Um, Stacy Tardiff, another five, and then. <clears throat> the name of this one is Someone. Someone bought us a coffee. I put them up on the story and stuff like that, but they're really uh, encouraging and just positive about what we're doing and talking about and stuff like that. So thank you very much, everybody. Really appreciate it. Um, last week, we talked about Reckless. Reckless is our sponsor now for uh, an official sponsor. So we're going to be you know, plugging them and talking about them. Obviously, they're a, a brewery up in Bethlehem. They make fantastic craft beer. And uh, it's just a great ambiance in there and um, great food, great music, and everything else. Yeah, so check out Reckless, Reckless Brewery. Thank you very much, guys. Yeah, thanks for all the donors. And, and, you know, we're not looking to necessarily make any money off of this, but it does add up. Like we we have the, you know, startup costs for a graphic designer, startup costs for voiceover. Then we've got like a platform for publishing podcast and a web a website platform and then a audio platform for recording guests yeah yeah it adds up for sure yeah, i got i got college tuitions to pay so i don't mind paying a little bit out of pocket <laughs> but if we can get coffees to cover us thank you audience so. yeah much appreciated i don't know if i need to help with like a grant writing proposal but if i if we're doing voiceovers and i can have morgan freeman do mine I don't, I'm not sure how many coffees that is per se. We we have a good voiceover person, and it's probably going to be cheaper than Morgan Freeman. So we'll 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 talk about that. We actually we were talking about that the other day, but we we will we'll talk about that offline. But uh, oh, but tonight anyway. You so you heard him chiming in. But tonight we're excited uh, to be joined by um, Chris Broughton Boss. Bo- how do you say the last name? Boss Bossang. That's <laughs> so. Uh, Here comes the story. Bibi is how yeah uh, that problem has existed <laughs> since uh i was born and i think it was probably my parents first argument um <laughs> but my first fire chief in kentucky got tired of stumbling over that and said you know bb's a lot easier how about we go with that got it so you prefer to go by bb or do you prefer chris everyone knows me as chris chris bb it's fine all right. Awesome. So we're excited to be joined by Chris Beebe from uh, the Solo Wilderness Medical School located in Conway, New Hampshire. So um, Solo is known for teaching wilderness for first responder courses, including wilderness EMT, wilderness first aid, and wilderness first responders. So they're on the forefront of all the wilderness medicine that uh, that we talk about here on the show. So Chris is here. He's going to share his thoughts about how you can prepare yourself for training in wilderness first aid and in addition to um, their focus on training it's not uncommon for solo students 
uh, to assist with search and rescue missions. They've actually been assisting a lot lately, I've been noticing in the press uh, reports. Mm -hmm. So we're excited to have... Um, have uh, BB here, and later in the show we will be reviewing some recent search and rescue events. There's been a lot going on, so we'll break those down, and I'll get Stomp's perspective. So um, I'm Mike, and I'm Stomp. Let's get started. Very good, very good. So I think we're uh, we're just talking beer here. So have you been drinking any reckless beer, Stomp? I at can't all lately? find it. I you know this is one of my complaints. I I'm gonna put a plug in down at. Um, Campton uh, cupboard to try to get some of their stuff down here. I guess I, I can't find it south of the notch easily, so um, I'm going to put the word out where I can. But um, yeah, I have not been up there. But we got to set up cool. a date. We got to set a date and go there, right? Sometime soon. Yeah, yeah, we'll go. We'll go up there and visit. So, um, but yeah, I, I was able to grab some carryout stout. Um, my father-in-law. Um, was able to get some, so good stuff, oh, yeah, and uh, we'll, I'll be enjoying that during the show. How about you, Chris? Right now, I'm gonna not admit that as my rationalization between having this on my palate or my plate for the night and uh, and having a review for a paramedic exam. I was like, yeah, Miller Light. <laughs> that sounds, it's a notch above O'Doul's. <laughs> that sounds nice. safe for the evening. Exactly. All right. Looks like looks like we lost him again. But we're going to keep recording here so that he has it. Uh, I just dropped out, but I'm back in. <clears throat> Continue. <Nice. laughs> All right. So, yeah, you didn't miss anything. Um, so, um, recent hike stomp. That's the next next topic here. Have you been out at all? Well, uh, half of this, half of that. I, I, it's like I go halfway up Liberty Springs and, you know, carry somebody down. I go halfway up uh, Crawford Path, carry somebody down. <laughs> I'm doing a, a, a series of halves. <laughs> That's the new list. It's just half of this, half of that. Yeah. How about you, Mike? <laughs> so that's it. No, no hiking for pleasure, then, huh? Yeah. Well, just rescues. Yeah, just little things. We did Mount Pemi, my wife and I. We just did uh, Peaked Hill Pond today, which is really sweet. It looks. I don't know if anybody's been up at uh, Unknown Pond, where you get that view of the bulge in the horn. Um, it's very similar to that. So it's right here in Thornton, and it's beautiful. It's not well known, but it's it's recommended, highly recommended. It's really funny. There's actually a couple of uh, stashed canoes there, so you can grab a canoe and just cruise around. Every year, I guess, Forest Service comes up and drags oh, nice. them out. <laughs> uh, the local boys hiding canoes up there. Uh, hey. I'm just thinking about, I think you guys have, seen that Nalgene, the, the 48, 4,000 footers. Mm -hmm. um, it's got them all checked off on it. We, we should see if we can get Nalgene to do like a half liter sized one of just half, like the 2,000 foot version of all of the 4,000 footers <laughs> and just yes. dedicate it to search and rescue. That's awesome. I've carried out the lower half of every single one of these peaks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all the search and rescue hotspots. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great idea. <laughs> uh, the 2K. <laughs> Actually, it has to be like a division <laughs> sign, like a slash. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it can't be a narrower bottle. It's just got to be half the height. <laughs> That's a great idea. Oh, man. It's time for Slasher's Guest of the Week. So uh, you're funny, BB. I got I, I met this kid. I'm actually your student, which is really cool. Um, I got to sit through the wilderness <laughs> first aid 
two years back now, so we'll be redoing that soon enough. And um, you've taught the class for Pemi, which is fantastic. This kid crashed on my couch, which is probably the beginning of this this crazy uh, relationship here. And uh, <laughs> but I, I love this kid. He's great. He's really funny. He's a fantastic educator. A hell of a lot of certificates and and knowledge. And uh, we're really glad to have you here talking. Um, Thanks. Yeah, you bet. Um, so. I guess we should start with you. I mean, you mentioned Kentucky and stuff like that. If you can, if you can walk us through where you came from and how you ended up here, and then go into solo and tell us a little bit about them and what you're doing for them, that'd be great. Sure. Yeah, it was sort of a long winding road. Um, I grew up in Washington D.C. and then moved from there. Uh, took a train out west to work with a western swing band when I was 18, and lived in LA for a while, then Philadelphia, which is, you know, that trifecta is where I got the bulk <laughs> of my wilderness exposure. Uh, so none. <clears throat> and uh, got involved in, in disaster response work, um, specifically with animals. So between dealing with veterinarians and growing up in Chinatown and Washington, DC, it's, I think it's a pretty clear path to the White Mountains. Um, and I was actually living in, in Haiti, uh, training veterinarians and thought since I had no idea where a hospital was getting some medical training, wouldn't be a, a bad idea <clears throat> and had a friend say, well, you should do a wilderness EMT program. That's, it'd be a really cool option. I said, I have never, I have no idea what that is, but <clears throat> I'd love to check it out. And honestly, at the time, my only knowledge of new england was um irving berlin's white christmas and the polar bear coca-cola commercials that was the sum total of what i knew of new england to be and so i was like well that place looks great so i'll i would love to check you know my the other option was wyoming so it's Cowtown or white christmas uh so i came up to solo did my emt fell in love with the program, fell in love with the area and had taken, uh, was working down in Kentucky at that point and was coming up to solo periodically to teach over the summers and just loved it. And finally was lucky enough that at one point they said, so when are you, when are you planning on staying up here? Which is mm-hmm. if you've never had the opportunity to suggest an idea uh, to a better half at the time and now an ex when this may explain that, uh, and go, Hey, what if we move to the mountains and have them? Oh, I love that idea. And then like three weeks later go, Hey, so about that, uh, yeah, you have a steady job. I don't, but what if we just drop all that and I move up here? Um, <laughs> which that went over wonderfully. Uh, but we came up to new England and I started working for solo full time you know, the idea of doing search and rescue was something that didn't exist to me. Any other place I'd lived that you don't have, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, search and rescue in DC. It's just called like a missing person. Um, and, uh, a friend of mine through solo bill Auten, who's been sort of instrumental in the search and rescue community for decades now, uh, sort of coached me along and, and got me involved in, uh, my first search and rescue team. And, and sort of introduced me to the community and, and also has been a mentor to me at solo for years. So that was in a nutshell, my very convoluted route to winding up both 
in New Hampshire at Solo and with the the SAR work that I do now. Mm -hmm. How long have you been at Solo? I've been teaching for Solo for 10 years now. Wow, that's excellent. Uh, Started in 2011, and so this makes my my decade anniversary. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about your credentials? Sure. So I, uh, through my previous work, doing disaster work, had been trained in uh, swift water rescue, technical ropes, uh, high angle rescue, uh, and then some specialty offshoots with sort of animals and disaster and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I was in Kentucky, went through the fire academy there and was trained as a firefighter and hazmat operations, um, incident safety officer, have done training with um, the National Guard and helicopter and landing zone operations and <laughs> Um, pretty much everything I have done wildland fire training. Now I'm in uh, paramedic school in between that did some, did my actual undergrad and some graduate work in wildlife conservation and, uh, spend a good chunk of time out in Southern Africa training, uh, anti-poaching units in, in first aid. Wow. Now how about, uh, EMT? Are you an EMT? Yeah. So I'm, I was in a, EMT and wilderness EMT for years until about 2018 and then bumped it up a notch to what's called an advanced EMT. The main perk of that, especially in the search and rescue community is the ability to do uh, IV fluid administration. You know, if we have someone who's dehydrated or diabetic emergency Mm -hmm. and I'm currently in the last few months which is what I've been saying for about eight months, but it's now actually down to the last few months of uh, paramedic school. Uh, and my plan is to, after that, not think about medicine. And I'm not even going to take Advil for like six months. I want to, <laughs> I'm going to catch up on Netflix. Um, I may not leave the house. I hear that's a, a bear of a test. <laughs> it's Well, the best part is there's like four of them. There's the... The Portuguese man of war that's, you know, one creature that's made out of like six symbiotic organisms, <laughs> five maybe. That's what this is. That's a paramedic program. It's, you have to get like six individual credentials to qualify for this other big credential. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's both anticlimactic and deflating when they go, hey, you passed your exam on uh, PHTLS. And at that point you're like, I don't even, I don't care. I don't remember. I, I'm not sure that I was there for it. I know I have another one next week that has other letters that I can't remember the name of at this point that all just qualify me to take yet another exam. Um, Amazing. So yeah, it's, it's sort of a blur when I graduate. If I graduate in November, if someone has a splinter, they're on their own. Right. <laughs> so how do you incorporate um, your knowledge with um, what Solo expects and what do you guys teach? Or what, what's sort of the core curriculum between those different certificates? <clears throat> so one of the nice things about wilderness medicine and one of the things that drew me to it is that uh, twofold. One, it, it developed just this sort of, a, you know, for anyone who's not uh, familiar with it, it developed because a lot of what we have as pre-hospital care protocols are sort of designed around the idea that someone's going to be picked up and arrive in front of a doctor within about 30 minutes or so. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in a wilderness setting, that 
that goes out the window that yeah a protocol designed for 30 minutes can't be applied to a patient who needs care for five hours or three hours or even two hours um and so a lot of it came down to treating the patient not treating the numbers or treating a protocol um which i i think is just holistically a more appropriate technique to take Mm -hmm. the uh, other side of it is that with teaching at solo I, i think in general people in the united states at least has been my experience have so much concern uh, about making things worse by stepping in yep. that it it freezes them um, liability and so one thing that's been really advantageous to me with advancing my medical training is when someone goes but couldn't this happen couldn't that happen i know when i first started teaching a lot of my answers were based on what i'd heard other people tell me mm-hmm. um and now it's kind of nice to go no i can actually i can speak from the what is considered like common medical practice from working in an emergency room or working on the ambulance or having done it for 10 years and seeing different trends evolve in, in medical care. Mm -hmm. And for me, the rewarding part is being able to tell someone like, Hey, there's a really technical answer as to why that's not an issue. We don't even need to get that technical, but how much can I give you to just reassure you that you following your gut and trying to help someone is probably the best thing for them. Yeah. Um, And so I feel like it's given me a few more tools in my tool chest to be able to give folks the confidence to step in and lend a hand. How about, um, I know this would, this would take a weekend or a week, but, um, can we just go over a couple of different things? Like how, how do you deal with orthopedic injuries or, you know, sprains, fractures just briefly in the, in the wilderness? Maybe we'll touch upon a couple of the highlights that you guys might cover at solo. I think one of the the relaxing components about diagnosing or treating an orthopedic injury in the woods is that to me, the most important thing is to just be a hundred percent sure what you're treating for, not a hundred percent sure that you're correct about what the injury is. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is if I have someone, I I, I think you and I both have probably carried out way more patients treating them for fracture injuries, um, and then found out that they had a bad sprain, strain, or, or a ligament tear or something. Sure. But l- looking at someone and going, well, how bad's your pain? Do you think you can stand on it? Mm-hmm. What did it feel like? Have you ever had an injury that felt anything like this? Oh, you have? This feels worse? Okay, well, I'm 100% sure now that I'm going to treat you as though you could have broken this. And mm-hmm. maybe it means more wear and tear on my back but it's going to be less wear and tear on your injury. Yeah. And then we get them out and someone goes, yeah, it turns out they just had a spray in you. Eh, well, well, whatever. Yeah. Just in case. So BB, one question I have is I've been for probably about two or three years now. I, anytime there's a, a media report about a search and rescue, like I just log it in a spreadsheet and sort of keep track of it. And I've categorized common issues. And I would say probably like, I'd say about 40% of the time the the search and rescue causes a lower leg injury. So probably about a year and a half, two years ago, I started like, you know, people would commonly on social mm-hmm. media say like, oh, you have to, you know, carry the, uh, the 10 essentials. And I started, anytime I saw that, I would always throw in, I'd say, you know, I honestly think like a, a field splint should be part of anybody's um 10 or 11 essentials just because I felt like 
I see, you'd see these lower leg injuries happen so commonly. Do you, you know, you've got a lot more experience than I have. I'm just looking at, you know, news reports and a spreadsheet that I put together. But do you, can you comment a little bit about your thoughts? Like, do you see a lot of like rescues that you, you go on that, that probably could have been avoided with somebody having knowledge of a field splint? Um, less so a field splint. And honestly, I, I think if the majority of the rescues that I've been on, when people have musculoskeletal injuries, it's on the hike out. Mm -hmm. They're fatigued and you're going downhill. So you're dealing with gravity and low fuel. And I think honestly, if people took the time to sort of calorie load, once they got up, you know, everyone wants to, to get to the top. You want, whether it's because you're going for time or because you just want to get the uphill part over with, you burn through a lot getting up there. And then we always have it in our head, like, oh, the hike down is easy. The hike is down is the part that's like nature's bringing you to your knees. Mm -hmm. And I think if people took more time to go, okay, we got up. Now let's sit for 20 or 30 minutes, calm down, relax, and eat something so that on the hike down, we're actually more juiced up and able to sustain ourselves. I think it would actually reduce some of the the likelihood of people taking a tumble yeah, makes sense all right so you're actually you're so you're like two steps before my, my thought is like okay the injury's happening let's let's address it but you're sort of like taking two steps even before that to say you know you put yourself in the space where you'd be susceptible to a leg injury by not treating your your calorie intake and and, and you're sort of not as sharp as you should be coming down yeah i mean i've without getting on to too long of a, a rant on this. I think one thing that a lot of people uh, miss, I think there's a very fine line between what's an emergency and what is an occurrence that just makes for a, a good story later. And it's just a culmination of small factors and whether or not we're able to manage them. Um, and I had a friend in the Midwest who was out hiking on a trail. It was raining there was a set of steps going down to this view and they took a tumble down them and then were stuck in the rain. And for them, when it first happened, they thought, Oh God, this is, this is bad. I'm in a lot of trouble. And they called me after the fact and wanted to sort of walk through it. And when you sort of break it down into, you know, well, do I have enough with me to keep me dry? If so, the rain doesn't really matter. Do I have enough food with me? Is it, you know, can I sustain myself overnight if I needed to? Absolute worst case scenario. And if the answer is yes, then you just bought yourself a ton of time. So it's no longer particularly emergent. Mm -hmm. And then the other two big ones are, can I get out and how do I get help? And they were on a very highly trafficked trail on a weekend. So if they did nothing to self-advocate, someone's going to stumble across them. And with some rest and some food, they were able to stand up and slowly walk. And so all of a sudden, when you can start to look at each of those components of concern and go, well, I can manage each of them. So now maybe instead of having this catastrophic event, I just have the time that I took a hard fall in the woods and got myself <laughs> out. And this is kind of a cool story. <laughs> That's great. Mm -hmm. It's reminiscent of the uh, uh, Ty Gagne book there about Kate. 
Matrasova decision points and just, you know, making the right decisions along the way. Excellent. I love dead air. (laughs) 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 Like every radio host I've ever heard, like always like talks about dead air, like you can't have dead air. (laughs) (laughs) We're just all thinking just for the audience's sake. We're all just in deep thought. right now. All right. How about, um, (laughs) how about, uh, we'll, we'll just zip through a couple of these. So how about heat and cold injuries? Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting. I was actually doing some research recently on uh, National Park Service stats on rescues. And the highest risk activity by numbers in the national parks is weekend hikers. Mm-hmm. Second highest risk is non-motorized watercraft. Uh, the number one leading cause of people requiring rescue was poor planning and poor decision making. So inadequate supplies going in and poor management of decisions once they're there. Mm -hmm. And a huge part of the decision-making was, uh, or of the planning was bringing enough supplies in and wearing enough clothes once you're there. Yeah. You know, I I think there's a really interesting, I don't know why this is, but I think with cold injuries, there's a really interesting factor that people don't think about, but we, we set ourselves up to fail in the cold way more than we do in the heat. You know, if you leave your house with a hoodie on and realize that it's, it's 80 and humid, no one goes, well, these are the cards I've been dealt. I guess I'm just going to die today. <laughs> you know, you take the hoodie off and maybe you go back in and change cause it's going to be disgusting. But people <laughs> commonly will go outside and go, Oh God, it's colder than I thought. And be like, well, you want to run in and grab a jacket? They go, Oh no, I'm good. <laughs> And I, I think that's one of the big, we always underestimate the impact of the cold. And then when people start hiking, no one wants to start hiking uncomfortable. We always want to be comfy. So we start by hiking warm. We get 50 feet in. Now our base layers are wet with sweat. And then we peel off our shells. Mm-hmm. And so we start dumping heat aggressively. Um and I think a lot of times folks don't equate, like, not to sound overly techy, but calorie intake with heat sustenance. And mm-hmm. I actually, I hate the term heat exhaustion because it's, it's not heat exhaustion. It's, it's just exhaustion. People burn through what they need to sustain mm-hmm. and you do it just as fast in the cold, just for different reasons. We're not sweating it out, but our furnace is going into overdrive trying to stay warm. Yeah, that's excellent. Um, do you have any memorable uh, rescues or events in your own personal life dealing with uh, heat? I won't say exhaustion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can think of two as far as the cold, actually. One recently, and I, I think this is the more problematic setting, was the one we did on Crawford Path. Um, Mm. where it wasn't a particularly cold day, but it was drizzly and gray and a little humid. And a lot of folks on that were wearing fairly minimal layers. Right. But then I noticed by the time a number of us got down, everyone was pretty cold, myself included. Right. Um, And I think that's the really tricky part with cold environments is that it's a, 
you know, it's a very fickle mistress. It doesn't take a lot for, you know, it doesn't need to be an Arctic chill for people to have problems with the cold. Um, and, you know, springtime is number one high risk season for it because one, everyone's celebrating the fact that it's not cold anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we prematurely delayer and then we get rained on. Um, and you're out there for several hours. I mean, just soaked. I mean, your clothes only do so much to keep you dry. Um, for heat, I, I, this is still, you know, and I, I'm sure when my better half listens to this podcast, she's going to start rolling her eyes because she's heard me reference this in classes too many times. But (laughs) I think one of the most miserable, let me rephrase that, the most miserable carryout I ever did was up on Glen Boulder Trail uh, in the middle of summer. And it was so humid that it it wasn't raining as much as just the sky was sweating. Um, (laughs) And when we were coming back down Glen Boulder trail, it was just a miserable slog and people kept sort of toppling, uh, trying to stay on the litter. And a a huge part of it, I think was just that we dumped so much sweat and, and fuel going up, Mm -hmm. um, that, that people were really struggling on the way out. Yeah. Glen Boulder is awesome. So, BB, question for you. Um, yeah, Bent Glen Boulder is just that's a steep haul anyway, getting up there. Um, but question for you. So, oh, I was just going to say, my I, I've been thinking about this a lot because I I feel bad when I have students that say, "What's your favorite hike?" And I go, "I don't know. Let's work backwards." I hate Glen Boulder Trail. It's it's a a miserable slog. And I had someone point out once, and I thought this was interesting that. I grew up in, in sort of the Appalachian region hiking in, in Harper's Ferry area. Yeah. And someone said, you know, well, if you, if you go to an area that was developed by Puritans where just backbreaking hard labor was the fast track to, to God, you get trails like Glen Boulder. <laughs> you go to the mid-Atlantic Appalachia where people had moonshine stills and couldn't walk a straight line. You get the most amazing switchback <laughs> trails ever. That's awesome. <laughs> it's like, I think someone's on to something. Yeah, that that, that makes an odd, uh, that makes sense in an odd way for sure. Um, now, a question I have for you about solo is if I'm looking to sort of get my feet wet in learning about wilderness first responder or wilderness first aid, what is like the, the one oh one course with with solo that I would take to to sort of be starting my journey and getting competent in helping save somebody in the wilderness? I would say as uh, sort of a especially for folks that are just getting their getting their feet wet. I you know, I can't harp on it enough, but when you're if you find yourself buying your first set of nice boots and a, and a good pack because you really want to make sure you can spend some time out there taking the wilderness first aid course. It's a two day class. The majority of them are taught over a weekend. Um, and it's, it really gives you a foundation on how to avoid some of the most common problems and how to play a valuable role 
in stabilizing some of the more extreme ones. And I, I think it really should be on, on sort of your, sh- your shopping checklist as it were, you know, okay, I got my stove, my bottle, my pack, my boots, and some basic training to stay safe. Mm-hmm. But that would be your, your, your icebreaker course. And it's, it's over a weekend to you. Is it, I've seen people, I've, I know a lot of people that have, have taken various courses. Is it, um, do you actually host people at the location? Like you stay overnight at, at solo or do you have to get your own lodging? No solo. Uh, when we have courses on site, solo has, um, a dormitory on, on the facility. Um, and I think honestly, that's one of the most, for lack of a better word, romantic ways to do it. You've got a, a dorm tucked back on a hillside, a, a dead end dirt road in the middle of the whites. Um, the, building was built by hand by the owners it sits on 300 acres of a wonderful hill uh, that we do all of our training on and it really does feel like more of an experience than just uh, a transactional like i you know like your classic cpr class or something got it so if you if you have a loved one that you think would be interested in this um it sounds like it would be a great like father's day or mother's day or birthday present for someone to to get them a weekend course and um if my wife's listening to this that's a that's a solid hint for you <laughs> that's great yeah i mean i can i can say plus you get to get rid of me for sure my experience at solo as a student is why i've been in new hampshire for the majority of the past 10 years it's <laughs> great now, how about um, Solo and SAR? How long have you guys been um, working with Fish and Game, and how did that relationship develop? So Solo has the school itself, and then there's also they're licensed within the state EMS system as what's called a non-transport um, facility or non-transport service. Um, and that has gone back, as long as I've been with solo and, and for years preceding that to, to varying degrees, one of the nice things about it, um, and I, I, it would be hard for us to pull off our involvement without the support of the, the search and rescue teams in the area is that it gives our students an opportunity to not only see the patient care and assessment that we teach them on a live patient, it gives them a great clinical opportunity, but they also get to see what is actually involved in doing uh, a carry out and a rescue. Mm-hmm. The upside is that oftentimes, you know, for any team, someone gets injured, they call 911, 911 realizes it's the trail that bumps it over to fish and game, fish and game, puts out a call to search and rescue. Now they have to hit their call list and see who's available and then get them from wherever they are to the trailhead. And with solo, since we have essentially a, uh, you know, everyone's fixed in one location, taking their class. It's um, called a captive audience. Oftentimes. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) It's a captive audience that may not in exact words, but be under the impression that they're required to do this, um, which uh-huh. is fantastic. Um, 
but instead we get, you know, anywhere from 15 to 20 people in one spot that we can take all at once. Um, and so it, I would definitely stray away from saying that solo bringing a class replaces the need for other teams. But one thing we've been incredibly lucky with is that teams have been so supportive in <clears throat> taking our students under their wing during carryouts and coaching them along as, as, you know, sort of, uh, green thumbs to the field. So how about, uh, your curriculum curriculum, knowing that you may be called out with a bunch of, uh, green, maybe, maybe not green hikers in this, in this realm of, um, wilderness medicine. Do you, have you changed your curriculum to prepare them for the fact that they may have to, you know, put a nylon strap over their shoulder and, and carry 200 pounds or how, what's happened there? I think honestly, the, the trickiest part is that students get very, Mm. very comfortable, you know, um, with like, well, I'll just grab stuff from the classroom or, well, I don't need to bring my pack out on this scenario. And, um, so we, we try to make sure that we're highlighting the, the need to treat everything Mm -hmm. in real time. Uh, I think one of the best examples is when we go over how to do a, a litter carry, I'll watch a lot of students drop their packs with the thought that, well, we're only a hundred feet from the classroom. I'll leave my pack here, do the litter care and come back and get it. Yeah. Um, and it's always funny to point out to them. Like, you, you planning on leaving the pack at the top of the mountain so that you can go back up and get it afterwards. Cause that's, that's what you're doing right now. <laughs> and you, you just see those wheels turn a little bit. Oh, you want us to wear these? Like, well, I'm not carrying seven of them. So yes. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, and it is funny when we do a carry out and then afterwards like, man, that was, that was a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. There's, it's literally the opposite of everything you could possibly want to do all at once. Yeah. Like, right. There's never a time when I've wanted to lift something only with one hand. <laughs> there's never a time that I've wanted to go downhill with more weight and there's never a time that I thought, you know, what would make hiking better is to do it with 30 people <laughs> that I don't know all at once. And one person that's particularly miserable. It's literally, it's the best way to make all of those things less ideal. And then we're just going to do it for a really long, drawn out period of time. <laughs> that's so funny. <laughs> oh, man. Gotta love it. <laughs> So, um, no, obviously you guys are covered under the New Hampshire well, or the state uh, indemnity and um, work, workers' compensation, right, for these students? Is that how it would work, or is this? Mm-hmm. Yep. It all falls under fishing games. <laughs> Except for if you're practicing medicine. Now, that's another question. I, I, you and I have talked about this on the trail a little bit, but uh, just the, the legal distinctions between being a, uh, just a good Samaritan on the trail uh, versus somebody that has a license. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that's one thing that's it's a, it's an interesting world because it's wilderness medicine in general has been and I don't mean for this to sound boastful or um, irreverent, but wilderness medicine has always been something that has been, has taken what is on the books and gone, well, that doesn't apply. How do we make it work? Mm-hmm. 
And so to, to look at a wilderness setting and go, okay, well, how do scope of practice modules and uh, medical licensure apply in a realm that they weren't designed for without breaking rules? Uh, it's become a tricky one because, you know, as I, it's something that I've started to look into recently, as we've talked about, um, but you're roping in uh, essentially recognition by the state board of EMS, insurance policies that are managed by the state, you know, whether it's fishing game or whoever is calling you out, and then what protocols they've intended to cover mm -hmm. or are prepared to cover. Yeah. And then also there's a certain level of duty to act. You know, if, <clears throat> if you're going in as part of a rescue, it goes sort of both ways as far as someone needing to go, well, here's what I'd like to be able to do. Uh, and I'm, I'm licensed to do it in the state, although not in this setting. And mainly if I'm only working for this ambulance service or this fire department, but then the other side of it that, I haven't been able to get a particularly clear answer on is what liability does a provider have who's trained to provide care, who's licensed to provide it is on scene to render aid and doesn't provide it because they're concerned with whether they might be covered. Mm. So I get, I wonder if uh, does good Samaritan shut off at your license or does it reside concurrently with your license? That's one thing that actually changes state to state mm -hmm. um, as far as how, like, who's considered a good Samaritan. Um, my understanding is that in New Hampshire, if you're responding as part of an organized team, you're generally not considered a good Samaritan. Whereas in the state of Maine, you could respond on an ambulance service in uniform and if you're not getting paid for it may fall under good Samaritan protection hmm. because you're now a volunteer. Um, <clears throat> so every state's identification and sort of recognition of good Samaritan coverage differs as well. Um, the, probably the one question that I'm curious about BB is the, you know, there's probably anywhere from, I don't know, six to 10 um, major sort of medical incidents that a lot of that will result in fatalities annually in the, in the New Hampshire region. And essentially, you know, you're talking about heart attacks, strokes when you're out in the, um, out in the wilderness. And typically, you know, those happen where nobody's on scene to sort of assist with uh, any sort of prevention of that. And the, you know, the, the hikers will, for whatever reason, will, um, you know, experience these ma major medical injuries and it'll, it'll result in a fatality. But is there any, um, any thoughts from your perspective, you know, the, the, the techniques that you teach in your sort of beginner classes around wilderness first aid, do you feel like those would help in those major medical cases or is it just, from your perspective, is it just a situation where those things happen and there's really not a lot that you can do to, to help people? And So I would, I, honestly, I think you actually hit the nail on the head with both of those. I, we do teach things to try to help, but it's not so much that I think there are techniques that can be taught to avoid that, but teaching people 
to understand and, and embrace, for lack of a better word, the reality of the limitations when they're in those environments. And, you know, Mike, you and I had sort of mentioned this a little bit earlier, I think offline. I'm not, I'm not a big fan of, not that anyone's suggesting we should, but I'm not a big fan of armchair quarterbacking rescues. Um, mm -hmm. I think debriefing afterwards and, and learning from them is invaluable. But I think it's really tricky when you, when you have a medical emergency in a backcountry environment, it's sort of like, uh, it's like taking a, a time warp back in time. Um, everything that we've learned about human survival uh, from a medical standpoint is tailored towards people being in a big city with a well-developed EMS system and major hospitals. Um, and that's what society is sort of hubbed around. And, you know, even here we, in the whites, we have someone who gets injured if it's severe enough, let's fly them to a major city where we have a major hospital. When we have people get injured in the woods, we've removed all of those advancements. You're hours away from people being able to get to you. Once people get to you, they're not going to have access to all the tools and equipment you would on an ambulance. You're now probably hours away from getting off of the side of a mountain. And it just compounds all of these factors that are contending with your survival, essentially. I think one of the unfortunate components that gets overlooked in that is the toll that plays on the rescuer who's already taken on a, a fairly steep challenge just to get to someone and then afterwards have someone go, well, what should we have done differently? Because they didn't make it. Um, and I, I don't know that there is always a good answer. You know, it's when you put yourself into more austere and remote environments. I think there needs to be a certain amount of personal accountability that, you know, depending on how bad this gets, I, it may be too bad to fix. Uh, I've taken myself off the map of, of response essentially, and put myself into a very, very remote environment where I don't have access to what we grow up thinking we would have access to when we have chest pain or difficulty breathing or, uh, some other uh, emergency waiting to happen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it makes sense. Your base. I always say, like, you're, you're, it doesn't happen a lot, but I do. You know, I recently did a hike in you know into the Pemi Wilderness where you know there's no cell connection. There's you're you're off trail, and I always say like, okay, we're working yep. without a net here. And you know, I feel like you know, there's plenty of times when we're out there hiking where we're working without a net, and you know, we've got to be able to accept that that risk and you know it's it's i guess it comes with the territory but no that makes sense it's just i i do feel like a lot of these fatalities it's like it's like getting hit by lightning yeah you, know, you just it it happens it's unfortunate but it's it's really no there's nothing that you can do to control it no i'd, I'd agree it's i heard a statistic a few times that uh and it, it kind of drives me nuts but people will say <clears throat> there's some evidence that CPR is more effective in a remote backcountry setting. And it's, it's much more uh, correlation than causation that when we do CPR in the backcountry, most commonly it's because someone had a drowning event or possibly was struck by lightning, both of which have a significantly higher rate of survivability than a heart attack. So because of that, sure, in those conditions, you're, you have a better chance of surviving anyway. 
But I think it sets people up with this goofy misunderstanding that, oh, well, if we do CPR in the woods, it should help. Mm-hmm. And it's, there's zero evidence to back that up. If you have a, if you have someone who's a compromised heart and they have a heart attack on the side of a mountain, it's, it's not to say that search and rescue and fish and game won't do everything they can to buy them every chance, you know, they deserve, uh, there's just only so much you can do with, with those limitations. Now, um, that leads into um, a question I had had um, surrounding, you'd mentioned the toll it takes on, you know, rescuers, you know, not, you know, not only physically, but my question is mentally, you know, when we talked about um, critical incidents, stress debriefings and things like that. Um, how do rescuers and people in these, these fields manage the stress and the impact of what they've seen over the years? Um, historically, not well. Yeah. Um, it, it's not a field that we pay much attention to, and, and especially in the world of urban EMS, burnout's a huge factor um, as a substance abuse. I think a couple of things that that contribute to that, especially in the urban side of things, but I think it's a good um, self-check in, in any rescue work <clears throat> is having a clear idea of what you define as a, as a success, you know, success doesn't mean that you save every person, but I think if you can go to bed that night, knowing that you did everything possible to save that person mm-hmm. so that at least, you know, family and loved ones can go, I know that they got every chance they possibly could. I think that's a successful operation. Yeah, um, I would agree. And and I think it's tricky because people have this uh, expectation that someone walking back out of the woods that's a that's a successful one, and that's unrealistic. And then it puts you in a situation of you second guessing yourself and going, "What should I have done differently? What else could we have done?" Instead of going, "I know we did everything we could. Mm-hmm. Maybe there was something else they needed." but it wasn't something we could give. Yeah, that's well said. I mean, PEMI offers, um, you know, chaplain services and, um, you know, if support, just if, if people are struggling with some of the things that they've seen. And I'm sure most of the other teams do as well. Um, that's a really helpful service mm-hmm. um, just to walk through and talk about certain... Yeah, I think it's amazing that you guys do that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, even... Even I think there's a toll even for these these lower leg injuries over the years. You know, I mean, it's it's mm-hmm. a traumatic um, event and it's a high adrenaline um, episode that you get called out on. And over the years, I'm sure it really does take a toll on people, even though it's maybe considered something minor, orthopedically or something like that. Um, I had two questions, maybe not specifically related to what we've been talking about, but you piqued my curiosity in the beginning. Did you say that you were training anti-poaching uh, personnel in Africa previously? We Yeah, it worked <clears throat> uh, two different times. Uh, lived in uh, Malawi in Southern Africa, training anti-poaching. Oh, one trip went traveled around to a number of different uh, reserves and, and wildlife sanctuaries training their anti-poaching rangers. What types of animals were, were of concern? Um, the main ones were without getting too off topic, the, the 
main one of attraction in Malawi was the elephant. Okay. Um, one of the tricky things with the world of poaching is that there's trophy hunting and then subsistence hunting. Mm-hmm. And so there were a lot of animals that were getting targeted by poachers, but not, not the way we think of with uh, groups going out for ivory, but they may just be locals that are, are hunting on protected land for, because they have no other access to food options. Got it. Um, but the, the elephants were sort of the, the iconic of the big five that were on those, uh, the reserves that I was training at. Very interesting. And do you, based on your experience, do you, do you have high hopes that we'll be able to save these species or is it just a, a, a difficult fight? Uh, I think it's, I think it's a hugely difficult fight. And I think, um, not to get on some philosophical soapbox, but I think, you know, with any, any battle like that, whether it's saving the elephants or a, a, a drug epidemic or whatever it is, I think the hardest part is that we look for uh, a quick fix and in, in repairing it. And oftentimes it was seeking a quick fix that causes the problem. And, it, you know, there's a much more complex underbelly to, to the issue, whether it's okay, well, we need to protect these, these elephants. So let's make the land surrounding them protected land so people can't go on them and hunt. Well, but what do we do with the villagers that live there? Oh, we'll push them off the land. Okay. So what do they do for food? Well, they can figure that out. Okay. So now the new pressure is going to be that they come on and hunt. And yesterday what they were hunting was, you know, uh, bush bucks that were legal for them to hunt, but now we just said they can't. Um, and it's, it's all the atrocities and, and lessons we could have learned from the American West seem to hmm. vanish like smoke in the wind. Yeah. So the unintended consequences of thinking you're doing a good thing. So that's, so my next question was going to be Haiti, which is probably an even more complicated scenario, but you were there supporting <laughs> vet, veterinarian services. Can you talk a little bit about like, what 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 is it like for a vet in in Haiti? What are they typically doing? Are they helping like street dogs and cats, or are they doing like large domestic animal or um, farm animals? No. So interestingly, most of the vets in Haiti worked for the Haitian government uh, for the Ministry of Agriculture and Animal Health, and the majority of them were trained in Cuba, which has a fantastic reputation for both having a very good vet school, but interestingly also a very good human uh, school of dentistry. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, um, it, it was mostly on agriculture. Okay. Uh, anything that could generate uh, gross domestic product revenue. Um, so a lot of the work I did was actually working on how to develop street dog uh, sterilization programs then we did disaster preparedness and response for livestock and then uh, an equine welfare program. One of the big tricks was going to Haiti. And, and for me, I think one of the, the things that I found most challenging was trying to avoid these sort of high uh, country that I've never been to. Let me show you how much I can help you. Yeah. Uh, I had no idea what I was walking into. I didn't speak the language. I knew nothing about it. And so I'd meet with these government officials that went, so what's your plan? I was like, I have no idea. What, what do you guys need? And with 
working with with dogs in the United States, a lot of people are like, oh, you know, are you bringing dogs back to the U.S.? I'd say, no, it's that's not going to help. We have there are plenty of homeless dogs in shelters now, but more than sixty percent of the human cases of rabies uh, getting contracted on the Western Hemisphere was in Haiti. Really, and so we could do these street dog sterilization programs and work on getting the dogs vaccinated at the same time, we might actually be able to help the people of Haiti. If we could use the veterinarians as sort of spokespeople in their areas to do disaster planning and mitigation when hurricanes came in, maybe we could help people either do an early harvest or get out of the way of a storm so that their farm didn't get completely obliterated. They didn't lose everything or they themselves would not get lost to to a hurricane and then since in rural haiti a lot of people depended on having donkeys or sometimes if they were a little lucky or horses to bring their goods to market if we could show them how to take better care of their animals the animals would last longer and could provide more more service to the families wow so you've uh, you've you've traveled quite a bit you but you've mostly been settled in the northeast for the last 10 years or so now yeah since about 2011 this is of popped around a few times but, but new hampshire has pulled me back well we're happy to have you here and uh definitely it's it's interesting talking <laughs> to you man you i mean you have a million stories for sure but um I'm I'm very interested i'm hoping i can take a class with uh with you as the instructor in the future so we'll see I'd love it. <laughs> well, your wife does listen to the show, right? So, yes. Yeah, oh, I'm working on it, <laughs> kicking and screaming. My, I'm trying to figure out like the next milestone. So, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> um, oh boy! But great. No, this is this is all very interesting. And um, last question I have is. Um, you've been on rescues with Stomp. Is he? Does he? Is he pulling his weight, or is he still sitting back with the holding the clipboard, ordering you guys around, ordering pizza? No, I, honestly, and I'm I'm not saying this. I'm hoping his camera freezes again in a second. But a couple of things that has always stuck out to me with with Stomp on rescues. One is, I, even I think on the last one was having some some aches and pains always has a smile um, and is always looking out for not only his team, but the, uh, the, the patient and the anyone related to the patient, which is always, <clears throat> it catches me because there's my goal, whether it's good, bad or otherwise is generally to, if I can make sure a solid 75% of my students still make it back out of the woods, it's a win. But making sure that the the patient themselves is doing decent and and bringing some levity to it if i can get someone laughing it's probably the best thing i can do for him yeah but i remember on one of the last rescues i saw stomp he was checking on how their family was doing making sure they had heard what was happening and and were up to date with the the plan for the whole rescue and Mm. i honestly think there's precious few people that that keep as much of a sort of bird's eye view on the whole situation not just monitoring the one person but you know their inner circle and then the circle around them and and uh so it's always one of those faces it's nice to see because you go okay even if i lose (laughs) lose track of what's happening for a minute 
we, we've got a good good overview. <laughs> yeah, they're a little more complicated than uh, you would think, these scenarios, you know. <laughs> but I appreciate that. Yeah, and I think when we when we originally started talking about doing this podcast, BB, we were like we were sort of angling towards like, all right, we'll do more of a general hiking mm-hmm. podcast, and you know, we just kept sort of talking it through and talking it through. And I, I'm I'm very interested in the search and rescue piece of it as well. So I, we ultimately decided like let's just let's lead with the search and rescue, and then we'll have the hiking as a as a follow up. And I think it's it's it stomps passion, and I think that it it's made the show a lot more successful because that's really what energizes both of us versus just if we did like a general hiking podcast and and didn't cover this stuff i think it would be less you get less passion from both of us so it it validates what i always figured stomp would be like in the field oh you guys are making me blush (laughs) yeah yeah. so you're a good man stomp even even though i give you shit all the time i think you know honestly i think it's it's a cool idea having a, a search and rescue podcast because one of the things that I always thought of with search and rescue is yeah, like the this elite specialty team. And I think in many ways that's what it is. But what's so neat to me about it is that what makes a team specialty or specialized is how diverse the specialties within the team are. Mm. You know, my thing is is medical response. That's what I do. You know, I actually, without getting into too many details, met my better half doing a training for for Stomp's team. And I remember trying to get up the nerve to uh, talk to her after the training was done and having someone hop in front of me to talk to me about how they were a, a map maker. <laughs> and it was this very trying moment of going, I don't think I've ever met a map maker. I didn't. I didn't know we still did that. That's I actually kind of want to hear this now, but I'm watching this person pack their bags that I've been wanting to go talk to for a day and a half. Um, and then you have some people that it's, it's like, do I hit on, on hit on this person or do I talk to the yeah, exactly. like, Amerigo Vespucci, if you can hang on for one second, I just, I got to ask this gal a question, but then you have some people that could, pick any trail in the whites and go, well, you know, this time of year, this part's going to be washed out. And then you have other people that just want to hike and and carry a litter. And I think that's what's, you know, when I have students go, what do you need to do to be on search and rescue? And I was like, well, if you want the technical skills, just get a cinder block, tie a rope around it and go for a really long walk up and down a hill. Yeah, seriously. Well, it's so funny you say that because when when Stomp first started like getting into it, he would like text me. He'd be like, "I'm going to hike, and I got a hundred pound weight in my bag." And I'd be like, "Why are you doing that?" And he legitimately like when he was just starting off, he would go and do those hikes with a hundred pound so backpack funny. just to be prepared. So you know, it, it, you know, you laugh, but like it's true. Like that's what he was doing, and I was like, ah, "He's crazy. I don't know what's going on with him," but. Lo and behold, it's working. I think out. I ticked off one of my team members on a, a carryout one time. I showed up to help out, and <laughs> and I honestly, my pack was not what it should have been for for the event. And as we're walking out, they said, "You don't have a headlamp on." And I said, "No." Well, I got thirty seven people behind me with two hundred <laughs> lumens strapped to their foreheads. Like I, I can <laughs> Google Earth is picking us up at this point. Um, and they said, "Well." 
I always, I always have at least three in my pack. And I said, and therein lies the reason that I didn't need to bring a single one. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, that's great. Which is horrible advice coming from a team coordinator, but it, I, I feel like I've gone through those ebbs and flows of like, I've got to have at least half an REI in my pack at all times. (laughs) And now I've gotten to the point where I'm like, I think I have a sandwich in one of my pockets. My shoes are tied. It's good, good enough. Let's good go. go. Yeah. <laughs> it's so great. Yeah, exactly. Well, well, thank you so much for uh, for sitting in on this. We're going to, I think, move on to um, our next segment. So we have a total of one. We have nine search and rescues that have happened in the last week or so that we wanted to just quickly run through um here so yeah we'll have to make this a little briefer but bb you got to chime in on some of these yeah sure yeah definitely definitely so i will um i think the first one i think this first one is the one that you guys were talking about previously so this was on wednesday july 21st um there was a 49 year old gentleman from connecticut that had hiked to the summit of mount pierce with uh, a family member and uh, slipped on a log and had a significant leg injury so uh pemisar had been activated and i'm pretty sure this is the one that you guys were Mm -hmm. talking about like sort of drizzly weather and had to do a a carry out with it says in the in the press report around 30 people in muddy slippery conditions to carry this gentleman out um so 11 30 the call came in and bb like you said like it's it's not a 30-minute response. By the time um, I think everyone got to the trailhead, it was around 6 o'clock at night. So so that happened. And it's pretty pretty common area where people uh, end up slipping and falling on the Crawford path. But I don't know, Stomp, if there's anything you uh, – any comments or thoughts on this one? Yeah, BB touched upon the weather. Um, this was – I mean, July's been basically cloudy and rainy. But the the day was weird. It was like a 60, 70-degree day everywhere except for Crawford Notch, where it was just heavy downpours. When <laughs> we got the alert, I got there, you know, second to the captain. The captain got there first, and then I arrived. And I sent out a message to everybody saying, bring your rain gear. It is pouring cats and dogs. Um, so, yeah, it was um, it was a very slippery mission. And um, I pull up, and then... I turn around as I'm preparing my pack and I see BB with like 30 people jumping out of their cars. <laughs> it's like so solo to the rescue, man. It was great. So it was it was nice to have the uh, sort of the the pressure eased off of the valve a little bit and just let them run up there and take care of it and um you know, it was it was great. I you know, it is funny. It's one of the my favorite things is when I go, Hey guys, we got to carry out and you see all the students light up and it's the best and most reliable way to gauge who has never done a carry out before. <laughs> um, they're like, we get to go. And you're like, yeah, you lucky ducks. You get to do this. Uh, and then afterwards they're like, oh, that's really a lot of work. Yeah. 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 You can always tell if there's someone in the class that's done it. So we go, Hey, we got to carry on. They're like, Oh Jesus. <laughs> Um, they start hammering back Advil on the drive up. Mm -hmm. But I do, I remember on the drive up to that one, it was beautiful. It was like 70 degrees in in Conway. And then as we're coming through the pass, it was, it was like the scene in Ghostbusters when they go into the the (laughs) sky rise at the end and there's like Armageddon over the building. I was like, well, this is good. That's, I'm glad, I'm glad we had to come out here for this one. Um, 
Yeah, and usually like on usually Pierce is like exempt, and it it usually is like Mount Doom sticking <laughs> over like Washington and Monroe, and then Pierce. You know, Pierce is usually like the one that you can kind of rely on to say like, okay, the weather's going to be a little bit better if it's nice, but sounds like you guys just didn't luck out there. But yeah. Stump, I had a question for you about this one. Pemmy was listed in the fishing game report as responding, but wouldn't wouldn't Andrew Scoggin be, be called on as the primary for something in the presidentials? Or, or am I just confusing myself that's a close one for us i mean we generally cover mount washington west oh, okay and that's you know yeah we can go further towards um like sawyer and whatnot but um generally cog amanusik uh mount clinton road you'll see us there for sure okay so that's how they kind of split it up yeah pretty much i mean there have been times we've been on jewel trail uh, with Avsar and whatnot, but um, yeah, I mean, who knows? It's just the background dynamics. I mean, it's all up to fishing game, whoever they contact. You know, it depends on who's available. One thing that was neat for me on that one is one of the nice opportunities since Solo does, I mean, not only do we have students that come through that have no experience, but we do a lot of the training, the medical training for fishing game. Uh, it's an awesome opportunity to not only get to see uh, them get to put their training to use, but when we have calls that may be more complicated in the field, uh, it becomes sort of a great collaborative effort between uh, myself as one of the instructors and the CEOs to go, hey, I know we've covered this. Um, do you want to walk me through it now? Um, or vice versa to watch a CEO go, hey, you know, we got this all splinted up. And you go, yeah, that's neat. And they're like, yeah, that, that trick that you taught us, that worked really well. And, and so it gets to be sort of a, a good learning experience for me as an instructor to see what what stuck with people. But it's also great, uh, or at least for me, I, I love it when I get to work with an, another search and rescue member or a CO who can then in the moment go, hey, uh, what are you thinking about this? You know, is there, here's, here's as far as we've gone. You think there are any other steps we can take, uh, and and sometimes we can do a little bit more for the patient on scene, and and it becomes a great learning experience for everyone. Yeah, which happened here. I mean, it was um, CEO Matt Holmes. It's great to see him back on the field. I mean, he had a pretty traumatic um, uh, accident on the beat, so to speak, and now he's back. Uh, looks like he's one hundred percent, right? Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, it's great. So you were the point man for that one, and um, you made the patient more comfortable. And Very cool. Um, so uh, we had eight more of these to go through, Stomp, so it was a very busy week. <laughs> so this next one is pretty straightforward. Let's do the cliff notes. Um, but it is crazy. Like, it's – yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll blow through these, but it's crazy. Like, there was a lot going on. I think a lot of it had to do with the rain, a lot of slip and falls. Absolutely. But 61-year-old um, um, New Hampshire gentleman hiking the Marlboro Trail on Mount Monadnock. So Monadnock's a – it's a busy place, but it's not a bad place to get injured because when you when you start hiking there, they've got the they've got the little rangers station right at the bottom of the parking lot, so they can just get up there quickly. So it's almost like BB what you talked about, like that thirty minute rule <laughs> does sometimes in, in Monadnock. It can it can come into play, but this guy he just is a leg injury. They called uh, for rescue around two o'clock in the afternoon, and I think the Monadnock uh, State Park. 
um, staff and a, and a CEO ended up hiking up to him and they didn't have to do a litter or anything. He was just able to sort of hobble his way down the Marlboro Trail and he got back to the trail at around 3.30 or so. So hmm. they put out a press report on it, but it seemed like it was pretty uh, pretty straightforward. Yeah. Um, the next one is a call that came in on Friday, July 23rd on Mount Washington. So um, a hiker, 46-year-old hiker from Massachusetts, she slipped and fell while descending some steps and lower leg injury that left her unable to walk. She was around 4,000 feet and about two and a half miles away from the trailhead. So they were able to get her to i guess hermit lake and they coordinated to get an atv um up there i guess there was some avsar um personnel on there and an emt so they were able to i guess get up there before the the atv went there and then they just took the ski trail up and um, were able to bring her down it looks like on an atv from hermit lake were you on this one bb no i I wasn't i was just thinking through my head if you can get to hermit lake at least you've got easy access in the the non-snowy months yeah exactly so the call came in at 1 30 and she ended up getting down to the the visitor's notch around six o'clock so um all's well i'd be ha- i'd be much happier to get an atv ride down than a than a litter carry for sure <laughs> um next one this is um this is kind of freaky like this makes me think so uh, first, let me run through this. So this was on Mount Chicora on the Liberty Trail. A uh, 25-year-old hiker from New Hampshire was hiking with a friend of his when he started to swell up, mm. um, having trouble breathing while descending uh, from the summit. And they're about a mile down from uh, from Liberty Liberty Trail from the summit. So they're pretty high up. Uh, so they called, I guess, Tamworth Fire Department and an ambulance service came and they met him about a mile and a half up the trail and I guess they, they were able to get an ATV to him for the last part of it. But a uh, call came in around 5. He was able to get to the trailhead around 6.45 or so and treated. But doesn't give any details. But, like, if if you get stung by a bee or something and you didn't know you are allergic, like, this would be a scary thing. And I, I never really think to carry, like, an EpiPen on a hike just, just to, to be covered. But that's, that's a scary scenario. It is. And, it you know, I think it's an un- – know i may sound overly cavalier to say this but there there's a lot of evidence to suggest that if you don't have a known sensitivity to something carrying an EpiPen is is probably a little overkill okay if you do have you know if you've been stung, you know yeah it swells up pretty good oh god if i get you know hornet gets me it's bad news definitely carry one with you um i've been on three different carryouts where we've moved debris off a trail and torn open a hornet's nest and gotten stung multiple times. And it becomes one of those things that you just wouldn't think about. Well, as long as I don't see a beehive and take a baseball bat to it, I won't need it. But I've seen it happen way more than I would have expected. Uh, So for folks that do have any sort of known sensitivity, uh, it, it really better safe than sorry. That and Benadryl. Yeah, yeah, that's a. I, I do have some Benadryl in my first aid kit, but I've had um, two incidents with the kids of um, ground 
ground nest yep. where they've stepped on them and we've gotten swarmed and it's it's scary like never in the mountains but in on on like these railroad tracks near near our place in maine so glad that he's okay um and then this next one happened on saturday july 24th and this is late at night so just before midnight report comes in that um there's an injured hiker father called he was helping her down um down the trail beaver brook on musalaki so that is not a good trail to get <laughs> get in trouble on so 22 year old hiker right. from pennsylvania pennsylvania she i guess was just sort of she was with her brother and father and they were making their way down um and i think they were right before the rungs or one of the sets of rungs to get down beaver brook and um, I guess the brother finally decided to hike out to get some cell connection to call for help. And Pemi Search and Rescue showed up late at night to, to bring her down. So I guess the call came in around 12. First rescuers arrived with the hiker around 12.30, and they were able to get her out around 2 in the morning. Yeah, but 12.30 a.m. Um, I guess they did not carry her. That's a late one. Yeah, yeah, 2 a.m., but that would not be a, a trail where I would ever want to carry anybody out on a litter. I couldn't I couldn't imagine you'd even be able to do that. Hell no, hell no. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, when that one came in, that's, that's when you go, oh, boy, <laughs> this could be bad. But, uh, yeah, they got out at 145. They were able to assist her, one person on either side of the uh, hiker, and just slowly made their way down. That is a tough trail. We'll have to talk about that one sometime. It's notorious. Let's just say that. That whole stretch. <laughs> yeah. 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 I I hiked that one time. So, matter of fact, I hiked that, and then later on in the day, I met you and we hiked Tecumseh. But I'll never forget, like, I, I hiked it at the end of August, and it was snowing on Musalaki. And a through hiker came through and did not have any warm gear at all. And I actually offered him, I was like, dude, you want my jacket? Because he was shivering and freaked out. And he was like, the whites are no joke, man. And I was like, yeah, it's, they don't mess around. That's funny. But he was, he was, I was like, you're below tree line, you're safe now, don't worry about it. But the Beaver, Beaver Brook is a crazy trail. On that rescue, was um, it the patient's friends that hiked them out? Uh, no, rescuers. You mentioned you had someone on either Yeah, yeah, the team oh, was okay. there. Right. So You say kudos to those friends. Well, they were present, but um, it was rescuers that um, actually took hold and, and helped guide this person down. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. All right, so we got three more here to go through. Um, this was on July 26th, a 22-year-old a uh, gentleman from Virginia was hiking with his friends on the White Cross Trail on Monadnock. So Monadnock is, it, it's a busy place uh, for hiking. It really is. Yeah, and it, they do. I mean, I get it. It's it's open slab and people just, you know, they slip and, and fall. So I guess this was a, uh, a medical issue uh, call in and they called around 445 Fishing game was notified, and um, they sent a, I guess some some rescue personnel um, to the White Cross Trail just below the summit, and he got a little bit of rest, a little bit of food, a little bit of water, and was able to hike out on his own. So, BB, I think it kind of goes back to what you were talking about about like you know you don't burn all your matches getting up because you still got to get yeah. down and a little bit of rest and a little bit of food 
fixed it for him. I think also a lot of times people think call in for rescue means getting an immediate airlift out. And, you know, I think a lot of times when fishing game gives them the walkthrough of, Oh, you're really, you're tired and, uh, and you're, and you're weak. I got it. So we're going to hike a bunch of people in that will be tired when they get to you and weak when they get you out. And it may take upwards of six hours. Mm-hmm. And then I think you have, you know, it's like calling a, an Uber and having it say, it'll be there in five hours. And like, well, screw that. I can walk. Um, <clears throat> and I, I think there's just sort of a misconception sometimes where people are like, if I'm injured, the responsible thing to do is to call rescue. And then when rescue goes, yeah, that's great. Can you move? I uh, start doing it. Um, I don't think mm-hmm. it needs to be that. Yeah callous obviously but i think a lot of times just the reassurance that like yeah you're not going to get some magical uh fairy dust cure you're just going to get a bunch of other people they're going to have to walk you out instead one of my favorite stories is the uh the call that came in and uh some folks are at garfield pond it's really hot we're out of water (laughs) (laughs) Start, start scooping start some water scooping from the pond. And start walking. You might shit yourself, but here you go. <laughs> well, that's actually, this is a good question for BB. Like, I'm always curious about this. If if you find yourself in a situation where, you know, you don't have a water filter with you and you're out of water, are you better off trying to hike out with, a, you know, and then you're near water source? Like, would you just drink from a stream or would you try to hike out for fear of like, getting sick from drinking no i mean i think it depends where you are you know if you're up in the mountains there's a brook running by and you're really getting you're feeling yourself getting lightheaded it does not take much for a a imbalance of electrolytes or dehydration to get bad fast Mm -hmm. it takes a while for giardiasis or giardia to kick in um i would say the responsible well, nah, responsible is a bad word <laughs> I would say the best option at that point would be to go okay I should have had more water that ship sailed I'm going to drink out of here that'll get me out and that'll allow me to safely drive without collapsing while I go to the urgent care clinic and tell them that I just chunked a bunch of mountain water <laughs> yeah yeah it makes sense hope for the best so, yeah, yeah, that's my that's always my thought too. Is I'm drinking from the stream. I went on a rescue once, and I I I will never have a particularly lucrative career in poker. My face simply won't allow it. Um, <laughs> and I remember this this hiker having cramps from not having had anything to drink or eat. And I remember one of their friends going, "Well, we brought snacks and held up this bag of unsalted." pretzel thins you know i remember thinking first like why in god's name would anyone make that um and why would you bring healthy food on the trail like you're you've already earned the garbage by hiking up a hill that's the whole point like no one yes exactly hikes up a hill and goes thank god i can't wait to get down so i can have a salad um like the reason that my weight stays at a net zero 
is that I will constantly hike or run or do any activity <laughs> and then rationalize an excessive amount of calories afterwards. And so I break even and never lose weight. <laughs> um, but I also remember them saying, well, we thought he was dehydrated. So we tried to squeeze some water out of this moss. It was like, Oh yeah, that's, I don't know that like bear pee tetanus uh, and maybe Giardia coupled with your salt free pretzel fins <laughs> would have been my first go-to. <laughs> And I had a friend very astutely point out, you know, the last time someone actually went out of their way to cook salt-free pretzels? And I was like, no, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. And he was like, it was when they were trying to escape Egypt. And then 40 years of traveling through the desert followed. That's because the options were so bad leading up to it. Yeah. Leaven bread. And it's all I can think of with that diet plan. We're going to bring one bottle of water and some pretzel thins. Like, what <laughs> horrible reality were you leaving in that trailhead that you thought this was going to be the best way to go? That's great. Yeah, every once in a while, like, I'll mistakenly buy pretzels that have no salt on them, and they just go right in the trash. Like, what's the point? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> and a dog's not even going to eat these. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, ugh. It's just like I might as well eat cardboard. Um, so this next one, um, this actually looks like Solo was involved in this. So this was on July 29th. Um, Fishing Game notified that a hiker was on the Boulder Loop Trail. I got a couple of stories on Boulder Loop here for, for after. But uh, 32-year-old... Um, person from Maine was hiking with a friend uh, and she was um, I guess stepped on a, on a rock that slid and caused her to slip and injure her ankle so she was unable to bear weight on the injured leg uh, looks like she it doesn't say what time she called but sounds like um, conservation officers Conway fire and rescue solo students in the US Forest Service responded that's a pretty good place to get injured. There's a lot of a lot of people around that that particular area. But she was about a mile from the trailhead, so she's probably like right in the middle of the loop. Yeah. And they had to place her in a litter and carry her out to an ambulance. And she got out around two two p.m. So piece of cake. Um, but yeah, kudos to the solo students that that arrived there. Have you done the stomp? Have you been on the Boulder Loop before? I haven't. No. Yeah, that's where my uh, my youngest daughter learned to hate hiking. <laughs> oh, Jesus. So we, we did we did a family hike, and it, yeah, well, we we did a family. Glen Boulder is where my youngest learned to hate hiking. All uh. right, so yeah, anything with Boulder in it is not a good trail to take your little kids because they'll they'll never hike again. But my my youngest daughter will never hike again because she had a meltdown on the Boulder Loop Trail, and I I feel guilty about it. But um, we'll we need to do a show about how not to ruin your kids hiking experience in the future but mm -hmm. anyway um boulder loop trail is a nice scenic beginner hike if you are interested funny that that one <clears throat> from our standpoint i think it was very gracious that they included us in the roster of of rescue personnel our rescue of that patient involved uh driving to the scene then driving in the loop of the parking lot of the campground finding where they were carrying out, unloading everyone precisely as the litter arrived at the end of the trail. Um, <laughs> it happens. <laughs> which, to me, 
could not be better times. Uh, that's fantastic. <laughs> it's um, all timing. Yeah. Yeah. I like to think of it as facilitating self-reliance. Um, <laughs> our students were a little disappointed, but one of the things that I, <laughs> I, I bonded with was seeing the, the friend of the, the injured party, once they were loaded up and, and taken off, the friend goes running past us and I wasn't sure where they were running to. And then a few minutes later go running past the other way. And then they stopped and went, which way is it to the main road? <laughs> and we just sort of smiled and pointed and they went, okay. And ran back the opposite direction again. And I was like, and that is my sense of direction in a nutshell. <laughs> like that's a hiker I can wholly relate to. That's great. Yeah. That happens to us up on Lonesome Lake. Uh, Lafayette Campground is a maze. So whenever we have to go up to the Lonesome Lake Trail, it's everybody gets lost. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> so we drive around the campground. Same thing. I, I think it's one of the things that, like with emergency response, a sense of urgency is good. With search and rescue, a sense of urgency paired with a good sense of direction. That's the key. Yeah. all right and we've uh we've reached our final um final search and rescue here and this is a good one here stop this may be this one may be an alien abduction one that we've <laughs> talked about before but mm -hmm. um overdue hiker uh thursday afternoon located on the sphinx trail at around oh. 4 p.m by other hikers who had come upon her so this 59-year-old uh, from Maine, she was hiking with her son, and I think they were doing hut-to-hut, -hut, so it's, um, I don't know. I'm assuming they were going southbound, so they had stayed over at Madison Spring Hut, yeah. and she was with her son. They were not hiking. I guess they were sort of together but not together, so the plan was to leave Madison Spring Hut, hit the Gulf Side Trail. I don't know if they were going up and over Adams. I'm assuming they were. Um, somehow, and I will say in her defense, like that Star Lake area, when you're trying to sort of navigate those trails, it is a little bit of a, like a Bermuda triangle of like which direction to go in. Mm -hmm. Um, she somehow ended up going down the buttress trail, which brings you down into the great Gulf. And that's a nightmare. Trail. She had messaged her son. Yeah. So she had messaged her son that, yeah, I'm on the Gulf side trail, so the son's like going up and down the Gulf Side Trail looking for his mother, can't find her. Cell phone connection dies. The son is like looking around the Gulf Side Trail. She, meanwhile, is making her way down into the Great Gulf. The, the press release says that she got lost off trail somewhere between Six Husbands Trail and Sphinx Trail, which is like the understatement of the year. Like that, those trails are so far away from each other in some of the thickest. Mm -hmm brush in the white mountains like there's no way that she could have been off trail for that long but i don't know where she went somehow they found her on the sphinx trail which i understand like you can well, easily hikers, get off trail on, on the sphinx trail hikers found her yeah but yeah. like i want to know where the hell she went between the buttress trail and getting to sphinx because she was not off trail that whole time i just refuse to believe that because it's just too difficult to find your way through be that that area really thick <laughs> that'd be really thick yeah. going yeah i'm not quite sure and then yeah. there's a comment about um didn't they find her phone on the trail 
I yeah, I didn't read that, but I, I um, think I saw that in the report. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I have no yeah, answer for that one, but that would have been one. Uh, that would have been a Jimmy Chaga stomp bushwhack. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's crazy. But eventually, they found her on the Sphinx Trail, which is like so far away. I mean, she went all the way across the Great Gulf. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, miles. Uh, along the Peabody River and all the way up to you know uh, sort of south of the great uh, the Great Gulf headwall. Yeah. So she was on the Sphinx Trail. So incredible. I don't know. They somehow she got lost, but they that is the the search and rescue news for the week. So um, it was great talking with uh, with BB. Yeah, BB's been absolutely great. Thank you for coming in tonight. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. Yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. So, um, again, thank you for joining us. Thank you for all the work that you do with Solo. And for our listeners, if anybody is interested in wilderness first aid, we're, we're going to include all the details about Solo classes in our show notes. And, um, you know, I, I don't know you that well, BB, but I can definitely tell you you're a great teacher and uh, anybody would be lucky to, to get your perspective on uh, on anything to do with wilderness first aid. So thank you again for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you guys. And thank you for the kind words. Yeah. BB, how do we uh, find you online for anybody that may be interested in following you or. <laughs> Sadly, my online presence is fairly minimal at this point. Um, um, as far as courses and training, the best way to reach solo is just, uh, it's soloschools.com. Um, and they have all their class schedules up there. Um, and then, Personally, my um, chipping my way slowly into the world of Instagram, which is at uh, Wild Country Med, as in short for Wild Country Medicine. Um, awesome. And uh, I try to update stuff on there. Cool. Well, thank you, brother. It's been good. Yeah, absolutely, man. It was good catching up with you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to learn more about the topics covered on today's show, please check out the show notes and safety information on slasserpodcast.com. That's S-L-A-S-R podcast.com. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you'll join us next week for another great show. Until next time, on behalf of Mike and Stomp, get out there and crush some peaks. Covered in scratches, blisters, and bug bites, Chris Staff wanted to complete his most challenging day hike ever. Fishing game officers say the hiker from Florida activated an emergency beacon yesterday morning. He was hiking along the Appalachian Trail when the weather started to get worse. Officials say the snow was piled up to three feet in some spots and there was a wind chill of minus one degree. And there's three words to describe this race. Do we all know what they are? Lieutenant James Neeland of New Hampshire Fish and Game. Lieutenant, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. What are some of the most common mistakes you see people make when they're heading out on the trails to hike here in New Hampshire? It seems to me the most common is being unprepared. And I think if they just simply visited uh, hikesafe.com and got a list of the 10 essential items and had those in their packs, they probably would have no need to ever call us at all. 